0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: This book is about loyalty to one's country and one's community. It's also about the American dream, but it's about like a failed American dream. The individual at the center of the story wants all of these things for himself and his family, but he's willing to sell out the United States in order to achieve those ends.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories.
1: My name is Yudhichit Bhattachary. I'm a magazine writer and a book author,
0: Tell me the title of your first book, because I love the title.
1: It's called A Spy Who Couldn't Spell.
0: Author Udigit chargey loves a good spy story, and this one could have ended in disaster for the United States. Instead, it chronicles how one man could have caused so much damage to his country and why he did it. What is this book about to you?
1: It's about a person's sort of struggle for dignity and their desire to be seen as someone who's to be respected. So it's really, it's a narrative of a person's quest for respect, but layered on top of that is the quest for money, for comfortable living, and the twisted sort of perverse ways in which that person then goes about trying to get that well-being and respect.
0: And all of that is wrapped around some incredibly high stakes for the United States. So let's start with the time period. Where are we in the world and in the United States?
1: So we're in the late 90s, you know, starting sometime 1997, 98 is when the story begins to unfold. And it sort of goes on through 2003 when the U.S. has gone into Iraq for the second time to depose Saddam Hussein. So the story sort of unfolds between the late 90s and the early 2000s. And of course, there were lots of changes in the world between those two dates. You know, we had 9 which occurred in 2001. And then there was the invasion of Iraq after that.
0: And what is the sentiment of Americans during this time period regarding the Middle East?
1: Well, the United States population at that point is is pretty much agreed on their outlook toward the Middle East and Afghanistan because of the events of nine one one I'm talking about the period sort of both leading up to nine one one and the years that followed in the lead up to nine one one The United States was already sort of in a conflict with Saddam Hussein. The United States was worried about terrorism, but most people didn't really take it seriously even though there had been terrorist attacks on Americans 911 changed all of that so Americans were by and large not favorably disposed toward the middle east and they felt that many countries in the middle east including Iraq Iran Libya were hostile to the united states
0: okay so where do we enter the story
1: it starts in the year 2000 when the story sort of grabs the American government's attention. And it begins with the FBI receiving a tip from a source in the Libyan consulate in New York. The Libyans had received three anonymous packages from an anonymous sender that included, one, a coded letter offering to sell American secrets to the Libyans. Two, a package containing a sample of the kinds of secrets that were on sale, and three, a codebook with which it was possible to decode this coded letter that was in the first package. So this was sort of an intriguing set of materials that the Libyans had received, and thanks to a source in the Libyan consulate, the FBI was able to get these materials. And when they decoded the letter, they saw that it was a long and detailed offer of secrets, of classified secrets pertaining to American military assets in space and on the ground that would be advantageous to a hostile country like Libya.
0: So two questions. One, what motivates someone at the Libyan consulate to turn this information over? Is this not something that they would value? Or was this one individual who just wanted to do the right thing?
1: Well, this would be the right thing from the Americans' perspective. I mean, this might not be the right thing from the Libyans' perspective. I frankly don't know because the FBI doesn't disclose its sources and methods, especially when it comes to counterintelligence. But one would assume that this was somebody in the Libyan consulate who was on the payroll of the American government, basically somebody who was a spy for us working on behalf of America in the Libyan consulate.
0: So someone within the Libyan consulate turns over this very cryptic package to the FBI.
1: A special agent in the Washington field office named Stephen Carr is assigned this case. And so his job is to try and first find out what this letter says what these materials are. And once he's figured out that this is a serious threat because this is indeed a real offer to sell classified information. So they basically try various things to try and figure out where this package was mailed from and who the person behind it was. Finally, they succeed in tracking down the specific computers from which some of the classified materials included in that sample package were printed from wow so it's really the early days of digital forensics of this kind and that's what leads them to a few computers in the national reconnaissance office which is one of 18 or 19 intelligence agencies In the United States, it's one of the more secretive agencies, but it's a very powerful, very important agency that is responsible for launching and running all of these spy satellites that provide the U.S. with extremely valuable reconnaissance information, imagery of military installations around the world, both in allied countries as well as in hostile nations like Libya and Iran.
0: How many people work for this department or agency?
1: Thousands of people work for this agency. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It is a really large organization. It's been around for close to 60 years. It was born right at the beginning of the Cold War when the United States and the Soviet Union were, were sort of fighting for domination of space. And both the U.S. and the Soviet Union recognized That aerial imagery was a very important capability in order to fight the enemy.
0: Could Stephen Carr tell uh, with the FBI what level this person had to be within this agency to have access to this information? Because I'm assuming not all the thousands of people who work for the agency have this, this level of access.
1: Because some of these documents that have been included actually came from Classified materials that were only accessible to people who had top secret clearance. He knew that this was somebody with sufficient clearance and enough access to lots of important information. But of course, even that number is in the thousands. There are thousands of people in the U.S. who have that kind of clearance. So that it was not an easy task to figure out who it was.
0: If this were murder, you would talk to the FBI. Uh, behavioral science, to profile this person. Are they doing that? Are they saying a white male in his 30s who has a low income?
1: Well, they did start to do some profiling of this person, and they figured out that he was somebody who used public libraries a lot, and that he had been using public libraries in order to do some of the work that was needed to put together this package. So that was one thing that they were able to determine through their investigation. One important clue that they had about the person came from spelling errors in the letter, which is why the book is called The Spy Who Couldn't Spell. And so they figured out that this individual perhaps had severe dyslexia. And that helped them to narrow down the pool of suspects considerably. And so once they had these two pieces of information, the fact that these materials had been printed from the National Reconnaissance Office, and two, the fact that this person probably had dyslexia, they were able to quickly figure out that the individual was a guy named Brian Regan, who was a master sergeant, a signals analyst, who had worked in the Air Force and had been working at the National Reconnaissance Office since 1995.
0: Tell me what a signals analyst does with the FBI.
1: So when you're engaging with an enemy or you're snooping on an enemy, you're trying to figure out exactly what they're doing, how many assets they have on the ground, how many airplanes they have, how many tanks they're deploying, everything of that sort. And a lot of that information comes from listening in on the communications in between going on you know between different elements of their military and that's what signals analysts do
0: so special agent Stephen Carr figures out that that this man Brian Regan is the one behind this. Do they immediately go and arrest him
1: because they don't have enough evidence to go and arrest him. And they also don't know how much material he has stolen, how much material he might have passed on to enemies. So they must figure all of this out. All they've figured out is that the person who wrote this letter, who made this offer to the Libyans, was most likely Brian Regan. That's all they know. But they can't just go and arrest him. They want to catch him red-handed or they want to figure out exactly what he has done. Because, you know, if you go and arrest somebody, uh, they might say, well, I didn't do anything. You know, you can't, you can't link me to these letters. What's the proof that I wrote these letters? So they needed a watertight case. Uh, and in order to do that, they continued the investigation. They started to follow Brian Regan. They put him under surveillance.
0: What did they find out about... Brian Regan in his personal life, you know, lay that out. What is what is his background like?
1: Brian Regan, uh, they figure out, is a man who's two years or one year away from retirement. In fact, what they figure out is that he has just retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service, because remember, I said that they received this letter. They were able to intercept this letter in late two thousand. And Brian Regan, it turns out, had retired in August of 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. So they know that he's now working with a defense contractor after having served 20 years in the Air Force, five of which he served uh, as a signals analyst at the National Reconnaissance Office. So they know that he's had this 20-year background in the Air Force, They know that he's got four kids, you know, four young kids. Uh, In fact, the youngest one was barely one or two years old at the time in early 2001, which is when, you know, this investigation is, is happening. Brian Regan lives in Maryland and his wife is a housewife who's busy caring for the kids. And they figure out that even though Brian Regan is not, Kind of an extravagant spender. He does have significant credit card debt, and it comes from just basically being a poor manager of his money. They realize that he's in some financial distress because he has four kids and because he's concerned about providing for his family on just his retirement income. So they're trying to figure out what mindset he must have been in when. He decided to commit espionage because clearly his decision to commit espionage most likely was made when he was still working at the NRO, you know, well before his retirement. Through their investigation, they're able to find out that for months and months prior to his retirement from the NRO, Brian Regan has been coming in to the office at odd hours and that he has been going into the printer room repeatedly and printing out copious amounts of information. So so once they figure out that it is Brian Regan, they're able to look into Brian Regan's search history on what's known as Intel Link, which is an intranet. Uh, it's a secure, classified system of servers that connects the various intelligence agencies. And it's on these servers that a lot of the nation's secrets resided at the time. So from all of that, they were able to deduce that he had probably been printing out classified secrets and then removing them from the NRO.
0: So in the year 2000, someone who's at a high level in a government agency, would they expect this level of ability with federal agents to digitally track them.
1: That kind of forensics was still in its early stages of development back then. And so it's easy to imagine that the perpetrator, Brian Regan, in this case, would not have anticipated that the government would be able to track his computer activity and then figure out that he had been doing all of this. But... You know, there were people in the uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations and at the National Reconnaissance Office who were trained to do this. And so they did have some mechanisms of tracking it, but they were cumbersome mechanisms. You know, they had to go through just tons and tons of logs. And it wasn't very easy for them to track exactly what Ryan Regan had been doing exactly which sites he'd been visiting. It took a lot of work over months to figure all of that out.
0: And I can't imagine that anybody working in this agency would have any sort of a criminal record whatsoever.
1: Well, no, because anyone who works at any of these agencies has to go through a very rigorous background check. And, you know, in order to get a security clearance, especially a top-secret security clearance, you're subjected to multiple checks, and Brian Regan had been subjected to all of those checks, but he had received a security clearance several years prior, and that was still active when he decided to steal all of this information. People don't start out as spies. I mean, at some point, they develop the intention to sell the country's secrets and make money off of it. And that's what happened with Brian Regan.
0: So tell me what could have happened if he had found the right buyer, Libya or Afghanistan or somebody.
1: Let's just say Brian Regan is able to transmit this letter to a Libyan official, which may have happened. And then he's able to transfer some of these secrets to the Libyans. Well, the Libyans could have then turned around and sold it to Saddam Hussein. And that would have helped Saddam Hussein prolong the war in Iraq. Or other countries like Iran would have found out exactly what spy satellites the U.S. had access to. And based on their knowledge of the orbits of these satellites, they could have decided to build new nuclear bunkers or they could have decided to shift their air defense around so that it would not be visible and not be photographable by those spy satellites.
0: So Stephen Carr and the FBI, and I'm assuming maybe other agencies are surveilling him. What's the next step?
1: At one point, he slips through surveillance. And at the last minute, the FBI realizes that he has flown to Switzerland. And even though the FBI doesn't know exactly what he's doing there, they later on realize that he has gone to the Libyan consulate in Bern in Switzerland, hoping to make a deal with the Libyans. And it's unclear to the investigators at that point in time whether he succeeded in doing so.
0: So they're panicked.
1: They are panicked. And so they are continuing to track him. They know that he probably has hidden a lot of stolen classified secrets and they want to recover those secrets they want to find out if he's already transmitted any of those secrets and the only way to do that they eventually decide is to try to catch him red-handed and so they hatch a plan to do so They find out that he is waiting to get his security clearance reinstated because after retirement, you lose your security clearance. And then he had started working for a defense contractor, which was going to place him back at the National Reconnaissance Office to work on a project. But Stephen Carr goes to the director of the NRO, Keith Hall, and says, look, let's have him back here. Let's give him back his security clearance so that he can start working again at the NRO as a defense contractor, because that will give us a chance to monitor his every move and then catch him in the act of trying to sell secrets.
0: That's still a little nerve wracking, I imagine.
1: though. <laughs> it's absolutely nerve wracking. And from the NRO's point of view, it's extremely nerve wracking because the NRO's already pretty shocked that one of their employees has been stealing secrets. And so they want to have nothing to do with him. They want to forget this whole episode, really. But the FBI says, look, we can't just let him go. We have to catch him and we have to prosecute him. So we need all the evidence in order to prosecute him because only then can we fully figure out what he has done. And so Keith Hall, in what I think was a very bold step, says yes, but he says you have only four months in which to complete this because we won't give you longer than that. Hmm. So we can have Brian Regan back in our facilities, but there's a time limit to how long he can work here.
0: So Brian comes home from Switzerland. We don't know if he's made a deal with anybody else. We don't know what he's taken with him. He comes home to Maryland to his kids and then starts this new
1: job. Before his first day, the FBI has cameras rigged in his cubicle so that they can... Photograph him at all times. You know, they've increased their surveillance of him. So they're tracking everything that he's doing. They're monitoring his computer at the workplace so that they can log every keystroke. In fact, there's investigators who are watching on a screen in a little office at the NRO. They're watching him at all times and they're following what he's doing on his computer. They can see everything. And Sure enough, you know, within just the first day that he's at work, he starts doing searches for classified information that has nothing to do with his particular assignment. And so that's like bingo. He's back to trying to collect information again.
0: How long do they let this go on, this monitoring him while he has access to incredibly crucial information?
1: A couple of weeks. And then Brian Regan tells his boss that he's going down to Orlando with his kids for vacation. And his boss says, sure, that's fine. And the FBI quickly figures out that he's actually going back to Switzerland Hmm. and that he's planning to go to Switzerland. He finishes up at work and he's about to leave to catch his flight. And the FBI, using a ruse, takes him away from his desk And photographs all the contents of his bag and his suitcase, which he's got in his vehicle because he's ready to drive to the airport. And so they they photograph everything and they find... In his luggage, a few more sensitive things, pieces of evidence that show that he's again carrying some information with him in order to try to make a deal. He also is carrying with him a manila folder. But at this point, he's about to fly out of the country when Stephen Carr and his colleagues show up at the airport and arrest him. What's his reaction? Well, his reaction is a little bit shocked, but also defiant because he is quite confident that they don't have any evidence against him. He thinks that he's done his best to cover his tracks. Stephen Carr sits down with him at the airport. He pushes these copies of sheets that were found in his manila folder and says, what are these things? And these are sheets filled with a series of letters and numbers that don't make any sense. And the FBI suspects that this is some kind of code, uh, but they don't know what it is. And so when they show it to him, he says, oh, it's nothing, I just like to play with numbers and letters. But that's where sort of the investigation now uh, starts to focus on these cryptic sheets that were found in his folder, because Brian Regan isn't confessing to anything and he isn't going to tell them what these sheets mean.
0: Well, why is it important to know what these sheets
1: mean? They have evidence that he sent these letters to the Libyan consulate, but they don't know what he has done with those materials. I mean, there's plenty of unanswered questions about Brian Regan's activities. And so if these sheets are code, there needs to be an accounting for that in order to figure out what Brian Regan has done.
0: So in that initial package, didn't he send a code breaker guide?
1: Yes, he did. But that was a very simple code. He had abbreviations for various words. But in this instance, these sheets that the government discovered in a manila folder that he was going to take with him to Switzerland, there were no clues as to how this could be decoded. The FBI had a a task on hand, which was to try and figure out what these mysterious letters and numbers meant. Along with these sheets, they also found in between the inner and outer sole of his shoe, they found a piece of paper with another code on it. Oh, gosh. In his wallet, they found index cards, with words like cycle, rocket, again, which they thought was part of some kind of code. And then they found, written somewhere among his various belongings, two addresses. And those addresses turned out to be the address of the Libyan embassy in France and a Libyan embassy in Switzerland. So they knew that he was carrying these addresses with him so that he could go and locate the Libyans.
0: Was there a good chance that he had actually found a buyer?
1: Yes, there was, because remember that the FBI, despite having kept him under surveillance, they had lost him at one point. They were surprised by the fact that he was able to fly to Switzerland. And so despite having had him under surveillance, they weren't sure about the things that they had missed. And so it was entirely possible that he had already made contact with a buyer.
0: So he is defiant. He says, you don't have anything on me. I didn't do anything wrong. And the people in charge of trying to sort out this code are stymied, I'm assuming, because the code probably has been influenced by his dyslexia. Is that
1: right? Yes. To some extent, you know, the dyslexia is a complicating factor. But first, they have to just figure out what the code is to begin with. So they're at a loss and all of these papers then go to an FBI cryptanalyst named Daniel Olson, who works at the FBI lab in Quantico. He's an interesting character. He's one of the FBI's top codebreakers. But most of his life he's worked on coded letters that prison gangs use to communicate with one another, but he's not handled an espionage case. Hmm. And so he takes this on as a challenge. And he's able to decode one of those index cards. And that turns out to be an address. So he's able to decode only a couple of things. But most of the materials, including these cryptic sheets, they're not able to decode. At this point, you know, sometime in October or November of 2001, remember that 911 has just taken place and the country is in shock. And in fact, Stephen Carr. Uh, is taken away from the investigation to go and help with the investigation at the Pentagon, which was the site of some of the attacks that took place that day.
0: And a big development is that the government makes a deal with Brian Regan, right? And agents meet with him and he says something that's really, really alarming.
1: Brian Regan sends the message that I've buried things out there that could start a war. And so... This message really alarms Stephen Carr and his colleagues because now they know they must decode those sheets because their hunches that the information contained in those sheets will point them to wherever Brian Regan has hidden the materials that he has stolen. So now the investigation goes from being a spy hunt, which of course ended with Brian Regan's arrest, to becoming a treasure hunt because now they have to find all the materials that he has stolen.
0: So he's admitted it at this point.
1: Yeah, he's admitted it. At this point, they actually have a breakthrough. He offered to help the government only if they would agree to giving him a eight-year or a 10-year prison sentence. So he was, in fact, trying to blackmail the government by telling them that he had secrets that could damage the United States. And it was partly in reaction to that stance that Brian Regan had taken that the U.S. government decided to seek the death penalty for him. Recall that the case started with these coded letters that the FBI got from the Libyans, but there was no way to link these letters to Brian Regan or to even bring in the Libyan source onto the witness stand and have him say that the Libyans had in fact received this letter because that would mean compromising uh, the confidentiality of the source who had passed along that material. Hmm. And so the FBI needed to find evidence that would directly link Brian Regan to these letters. And they finally found on the hard drive of one of Brian Regan's laptops, they found the exact same letter. And that's how... They now knew that they had the evidence needed to link him to this plot. Once they had this, the U.S. government decided that it was going to ask for the death penalty for Brian Regan. And that was something unusual and unprecedented because the United States has not asked for capital punishment for anybody accused of espionage since the Rosenberg trial back in 1954... The Rosenbergs were accused of transmitting nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union, and they were given the death penalty for having committed that crime. But that was back in 1954. And since then, nobody accused of espionage have been given the death penalty. But now the government was asking for the death penalty for Brian Regan.
0: But had anybody been caught with this level and depth, of information since the Rosenbergs.
1: Yes and no, in the sense that there have been spies like Robert Hansen, who had bossed on tons of very, very sensitive information to the Russians.
0: So I keep thinking of plea deals in criminal cases where you, you know, have a capital case and you tell the person who has just been convicted, we won't kill you if you tell us where the body is. Is this not the same thing?
1: Well, there were two schools of thought within the Department of Justice and within the national security you know, establishment on Brian Regan. There were many, including many at the National Reconnaissance Office, who wanted to agree to whatever Brian Regan was asking for and basically to capitulate to his demand and let him get a minimum sentence in exchange for telling them what he had done. But the Department of Justice which prevailed in this case, they decided that this would open the door to similar blackmailing in the future by traitors in the future. And I think it was this longer-term view which led them to amp up the pressure on Reagan by asking for the death penalty.
0: I'm assuming he panicked or something like it when he got this news?
1: He was still very defiant. He thought that he would still get away with it. He thought that he might prevail at trial because he was confident that the government did not have enough evidence to link him to materials that he had stolen. Hmm. Because the government at this point still didn't know where he might have kept those things. And so perhaps he thought, look, even if they're able to prove that I was searching for these things, they can't prove that I took them. Right. So the case did go to trial. The trial didn't go as he had hoped. Hmm. And Brian Regan was convicted on charges of attempted espionage. And an interesting thing had transpired in the meantime. He had sent his wife a letter from prison asking her to go out into the woods and bury little toys in order to cover up his own acts of having hidden some of these classified secrets.
0: What? (laughs) I don't understand it. He doesn't think people read his correspondence?
1: Well, it was, in fact, a coded letter that he had sent to her. (laughs) It was a coded letter, and he had somehow managed to evade the authorities. Wow. But they did find out, and his wife didn't really know what he had been up to, and she thought that maybe she was just helping him. And so she went out and she did as she had been instructed by him. But later on, when the FBI found out that he had communicated with his wife and that she had followed his instructions, they went and questioned her and she led them to all of these places where she had gone and buried little toys. And so now she was liable to be prosecuted for having acted as an accomplice to him. Wow. And so when he got convicted... And he got sentenced. This was around March of 2003. Brian Regan knew that his wife could also now be prosecuted. And finally... He got smart. The prosecution and Brian Regan, they came to an agreement that in exchange for the government not prosecuting his wife and allowing her to hold on to the spousal pension Hmm. from his military service... He would cooperate with them, with the government, and tell them exactly what he had done. Wow. And help them recover the materials that he had stolen.
0: So it's the least selfish thing that he's done through this whole story.
1: Yes, that is quite true. Now starts sort of the final phase of this investigation where Carr and his colleagues have to retrieve everything that Brian Regan has stolen And at this point, he sits down with the investigators and tells them that, yes, those sheets that you found in the Manila folder are code. And they are actually coded coordinates of all the locations in a state park where I've buried several packages of classified documents and DVDs and other materials. But you don't have to decode these sheets because if you go down I-95 to this exit, right by the exit. If you dig in this particular location, you will find a toothbrush holder in which I have the actual coordinates, not encrypted, but the actual coordinates of the places where I've buried documents in Virginia, 90 miles from here.
0: Does he fancy himself as some sort of sophisticated I don't know, 007 spy? Because some of this seems, for the dramatics, maybe even in his own head.
1: Uh, He's certainly got some delusions of grandeur. And he thinks of himself, you know, he's got a fantasy running in his head in which he is like a 007 character who's so smart and who's who's so skilled at espionage. He thinks he can hoodwink the government. And so you're right that some of this is delusional thinking. But regardless, it turns out that he has indeed buried these materials in Virginia, and the government is able to retrieve all of those materials. But they've also found in the toothbrush holder another sheet of encrypted coordinates. And these are actually coordinates of locations at the Patapsco State Park in Maryland not far from where I'm sitting right now in Silver Spring, where he's buried seven more packages in seven locations. Wow. And here's the tricky part, and here's the twist to the story. Brian Regan has forgotten the key to this particular code and can't for the life of him remember how to crack his own code.
0: Oh, gosh. What do you do with an inept spy? How do you deal with that? (laughs) The spy who can't remember his own code.
1: Yes. Uh, and so so this is where I think Daniel Olson, who's really brilliant, starts to reverse engineer some of Brian Regan's thinking and is finally able to work with Brian to decode that particular sheet. And the key to that sheet happens to be Brian's high school yearbook from 1977. What? Yes, there's a really interesting key that he uses. He uses the pictures of all of his fellow students from the class of 1977, from the school in Farmingdale, Long Island, where he grew up. And working with Brian, Daniel Olson is finally able to figure out what that code is and is able to figure out that a series of numbers right at the end of this code are the actual coordinates that you don't even need to decode them.
0: Are they surprised by this material? Is it deeper than the material they had recovered from the person at the Libyan consulate or different in any way?
1: It's of the same kind, but it's just as sensitive, it's just as important, it's wow. just more of it, but they aren't able to go and dig this up right away because even though Brian has provided now that the locations, just those locations are not enough because he's used a system of nails on trees at these locations to determine exactly where he's going to bury these things. So- In other words, if you just have the coordinates for these locations, which Steve Carr did, and you go out looking for the materials, you won't find them because Brian had also worked into his scheme an added layer of protection where there was a certain distance from these coordinates that the things were actually buried. Did he remember that, I hope? Also he remembered some of it, but not all of it. Also keep in mind that GPS and these coordinates, they're not absolutely precise. You know, it's like they're accurate within a radius of a few dozen meters or, or maybe a dozen yards or so. So it proved to be far more difficult to actually find these packages. And so Stephen Carr had to get special permission to get Brian Regan out of jail. And he had to bring him to Patapsco uh, so that Brian Regan could help identify the exact precise locations where these things were buried. It took several weeks for them to recover everything.
0: What was the reaction of his wife and children to all of this? I mean, you were saying she was shocked and then even more shocked that she was being charged as an accessory in a felony case.
1: The kids were too little, but the wife... Was extremely bitter. He kept saying that he had done this for the family, but of course, that did not comfort her in the least because Brian really ruined their lives by committing this act of betrayal against his country.
0: Do you think this was really about money?
1: I do not believe that this was about money. In entirety. Yes, to some extent, it was about financial security because Brian Regan was concerned that he wasn't going to make enough money after his retirement. But I think even more than that, this was about Brian Regan's need for validation, his need to prove to the world that he was a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. And this is partly because of how he had struggled especially in childhood through high school and even through part of his professional life to counter this image of being a sort of somewhat dim-witted and not very smart and socially awkward fellow. He always thought that people weren't taking him seriously, that people were not respecting him enough. And this was most likely tied to his dyslexia because from childhood, Because he had dyslexia, I think he got made fun of in school. I think his teachers weren't that sympathetic towards him. Keep in mind that this was the 1970s when teachers knew even less about learning disability than they do today. And I think all of those challenges that he faced in life shaped his psychology and twisted his psychology in a way that led him to make these poor choices. The death penalty came off the table and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And so that's where he is now. I wanted to know if he showed remorse. He did show remorse. I think he showed remorse most of all because of what his family had to go through because of him.
0: What are the lessons learned here, do you think, with this story?
1: I think there's multiple lessons. I think the most emotional lesson is that People with learning disabilities need to be treated much better than they are in the world. Because if Brian Regan had had kinder mentors and supervisors and colleagues and classmates, I don't think that he would have grown up with the kind of psychology that ultimately influenced him to do the things that he did. I also think that there was a big lesson learned here for the intelligence community in terms of protecting digital information, classified information that exists in digital form, because what Brian Regan did was a precursor to the loss of information that resulted from Edward Snowden's actions Mm -hmm. several years later. You know, we can debate about Snowden's motivations for doing what he did, But both Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning were able to exploit the same vulnerabilities that Brian Regan had taken advantage of. So I think there's a great lesson to be learned about the insider threat within the intelligence community.
0: Because there are other Brian Regans out there.
1: There have to be, uh, just statistically, because there are tens of thousands of people with security clearances who have access to all kinds of secrets. And because they all have personal lives, they all have needs, and they all have dynamic lives. They may be very patriotic today, but things might happen to them tomorrow that might make them vulnerable.
0: On the next episode of Wicked Words, Lisa Rodman on her childhood babysitter, the serial killer. It sounds like the story of your relationship with your mother, especially in that time period, was more traumatizing or more painful for you to tell than the story of being babysat by a serial killer. That's one of the many ironies of this book. It's about surviving her, not him. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi, Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.